Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Reboot Ed, the podcast where we talk about big issues in education and hardly ever come up with any answers. I'm Mike Ballmer, your host. Uh, Andrew Schwab, our co-host, is on injured reserve. He's uh, got a little flu bug going, so he won't be joining us. But we, we're really excited this week to have as our guest, Diana Laufenberg, um, formerly of uh, Science Leadership Academy and schools in uh, other really interesting places. D- Diana, thank you very much for taking a little time for us and um, welcome to the podcast. Good evening, glad to be here. Um, I, I, I wanna start off just, you gave a great, probably one of the most inspirational keynotes that I've heard in a very, very long time uh, up in Napa a couple weeks ago at Fall Q. Um, but in that, and, and also a little bit in the TED Talk, and we'll, we'll put the address to your TED Talk on, on the website when we set this up. Can you talk a little bit about your evolution as a teacher and where you started uh, and, and, and kind of take that through to where you are now and, and what you're doing? So I, I joke that I started being a teacher very young. Um, I, and I've, I've rarely told this story, but when I was in the sixth grade, there was a group of boys that really struggled to read, and they kept taking recess away from this group of boys. It really bothered me. I didn't really want to go out for recess. I was kind of angling for a way to stay in and became the tutor of this group of four boys. To, and my goal was to get them recess back. <laughs> so, and, and this was in recess. this was in sixth grade? Sixth grade. Okay. So I had this like, goal like, huh. And then... Um, have, have always, you know, there's another hilarious story that a friend of mine will tell in the ninth grade. Um, we had a, uh, algebra teacher that was really struggling to get through to the kids. And, um, during our, our study hall, I would sit in the band room and I got math at a very early age where just, I didn't, I just got math up until calculus. There wasn't a day where I didn't understand every single part of the math classes I'd been in. And, my friends would be like, can you give me the answers to our assignment? Because I don't get it. And I would look at them and go, well, I'm not going to give you the answers, but I'll sit here and teach you if you want to. And we'd sit on the, the chalkboards in the ninth grade in the band room during study hall, and I'd break down algebra for them. Um, and so I definitely had the beginnings of it then, and then just decided in the middle of high school somewhere that actually what I wanted to do was become a lawyer. And so that was the plan up until – probably about my sophomore year of college. And then I just started thinking really about what it is I wanted to spend my time doing. So I have a degree in political science and government, minor in history. And then in Wisconsin, you did all of that and then got certified to teach all, all as a bachelor's degree, you know, lots of, lots of credits. Um, And then student taught in Rice Lake, Wisconsin in middle school in 97 Loved it, had a fabulous time, um, and then really have just tried to stay incredibly reflective and aware of the changing opportunities around me about continually refining what it is I was doing, really paying attention to the feedback I'd get from kids, and just trying always to figure out what's, what's going to make this a better learning environment for the kids at all times. And I was lucky enough to work in a first job that provided all of those um, kind of elements for me and really gave me a sound foundation when I taught in Kansas. 
So was that just by virtue of luck or is that why you went to this school in Kansas? How, how did you, how does a farm girl from Wisconsin, well, okay, Kansas, I guess the farm girl. No, no, I, yeah, and, and I rarely talk about this part. I was dating a guy who was at KU. I mean, that was, we had, okay. met, we had met at summer camp in Wisconsin um, as counselors, um, and he was at KU, and I didn't want to stay in Wisconsin forever and thought, Sure, we'll see what's going on there. And so I found a school outside of Lawrence, Kansas, that was willing to hire, you know, an inexperienced teacher. Um, it was it, the world's most hilarious interview story um, that ends with me getting the job. But um, it was, I mean, it was uh, a lot of principal support. They gave me the financial support. They let me do wacky stuff with kids. Um, we did all kinds of crazy stuff those three years. Um, they would like, so their new, well, the governor that just got reelected in Kansas, Sam Brownback was running for his first year of Congress in 98 when we were there and we wanted to get him at our school for something. And we picked up in the morning in the newspaper that he was going to be in Lawrence, which was about 20 minutes away from the school. And I went into the principal and went, if I can get my classes covered, can I grab a couple of kids and, drive into Lawrence and see if we can, you know, stand in front of Sam Brownback um, face to face and kind of guilt him into coming and <laughs> sure, go get a van out of the bus barn. You know, they just, they, they literally let me chase down every crazy idea I had. And, and with class sizes of 17 and a super supportive environment, I mean, it was, it was a, a really great first job. Um, and so I think that moment of getting encouraged at the beginning kind of, and then I'm just incredibly stubborn. So once I'd kind of figured out like, oh, there's some serious promise here and doing all these interesting things that I just never really stopped. So eventually you left Kansas and mm -hmm. you went to Philadelphia. Well, I went to Flagstaff, Arizona. For, I missed the piece. Sorry. Oh, I was there for eight years. So in 2000, I was in Kansas for three years and then Arizona for eight years. Um, and that was a dart on a map kind of decision. Um, oh, but it, what a dart. I love Flagstaff. What a great place to live. It is extraordinary. Um, it is one of the most uh, delightful places to live in the world um, as far as climate and people and opportunities and sunshine and all the good stuff. So I truly um, loved living there and being part of that community. Um, the year that I chose to leave, they had decided to dismantle a piece of the middle school um, organization that I valued deeply and decided that I didn't want to be there if that had continued, you know, if they were going to discontinue that. And that was where we got to do multi-age looping interdisciplinary teams, which is, you know, buzzword bingo of fun. But what it meant was we had a two-year curriculum with a group of kids that was multi-age. They all learned from each other. I had a really solid other three teachers that I worked with, and we did some just spectacular work with kids that I believed in heavily. And when they decided to dismantle that, I just, I couldn't, I just had no desire to kind of stay in the middle of that. And there wasn't anywhere really for me to go in Flagstaff. I mean, it's a history teachers die in their jobs. They never leave them. And, you know, so I kind of looked around and there wasn't an opportunity. And I thought this might be the moment. Um, I had a really wonderful um, assistant principal at that time who sat there across the table from me and said, I think you need to go. 
and uh, and and did, um, and then joined the staff at the Science Leadership Academy in 2008, and stayed there for four years. So, just I mean, not to birdwalk too far away from it, but I'm kind of curious about how that school developed this looping concept and working with a cohort of kids and a group of teachers. Was that something that came out of looking at what was going on, or is this some really innovative teachers that just wanted to try something new? How, how did you guys come, A, to develop the idea, and B, to pull it off? So it has none of those good qualities to it. Oh, Basically, okay. we worked. so we had worked as seventh grade teachers as a team together for one year. And then the next year, we had a budget problem, and we needed a split team. And to get into the split team, we had to take half of the eighth graders and half of the seventh graders. And we said, well, first of all, they were looking for anybody who was willing to do it because it was a, a tricky job. And the four of us, we basically said, if we can stay together as a team, because some of the teams were being reorganized, if we can stay together as a team, we'll do it. And then we said, and we want to take our, our eighth graders need to be the seventh graders we taught last year. And that's and it really wasn't anything other than a practical solution to a budget problem. Um, but then what we did with it for seven years was get really good at working with kids over a two-year loop and supporting them. Like, there's still parents right now, if I were to post online, tell me your favorite Team 4, because we all had numbers, we were Team 4, memory, there'd be kids and parents that would pipe off immediately. It was a really fabulous, it was a great learning environment for kids, and it was a fabulous teaching environment as well, because a two-year loop with kids, I think, is, it was an only a two-year program, so when they came in, we had them for the full middle school experience, and it was, it, it was good, so. Yeah, I, I, when you, when you talked at Q, um, and looking at some of the things you've shared, your TED Talk and, and your blog, I, I, it's like, I might have liked history if, um, you know, I had a curriculum like that or a class like that, because to me, history is just, you know, one darn thing after another and starting in the front of the book and Mesopotamia to World War II and then you go on to um, American government. But um, the, the idea that you could actually pull that off with middle school kids um, is remarkable. Well, and I think I've been using this analogy lately and it works for both history teachers and math teachers, which is and math teachers are often the ones that say things like, it's really hard for me to do inquiry-driven, project-based. And, and, I, and I give them that. It is, by the current concept of what we consider math. Um, but as with history, if you think your job is teaching a timeline, you're never going to get to the inquiry. And if, with math, if you think your job is only to teach computation, you're never going to get to the inquiry-driven project base. But if you believe that both of those are the foundational moments to do something interesting with it, you get to do some pretty fabulous stuff with, with the content that you're working with. And so it's not that computation isn't part of math or that the timeline isn't important. It's just not the interesting part. It's the part by which you build with. You know, two by four isn't interesting until you do something with it. Hmm. So, you know, that's, you know, what are your building materials and then what do you create from that? So you've been doing this for a long time. Well, okay, first, 
teaching for a long time. <laughs> yeah, let's let's leave let's leave Arizona. What took you to SLA? Had you read about it and wanted to join, or was it another sort of serendipitous thing? Um, I've been um, following the open of the school starting in 06. Um, I'd been reading a blog by Christian Long mm -hmm. back in the day called, let's see, I think he called it Think Lab. And he had basically said, my friend Chris Lehman is starting a school. Here's some interesting things about what's going on. And I just kind of followed the, the genesis of that. And then that January decided to go to Philadelphia for the very first Educon, which is the conference that we host every January. Um, we'll be doing it again this year. Yeah, um, I was fortunate enough to go um, the um, last year. And it was, other than there the being like five below zero, <laughs> I, I kind of joked with Chris. It's like, dude, you've got to choose like the coldest time of the year in Philadelphia to have a conference. And, and the story of that um, is that it's the only weekend where there's no Eagles football because right. it's between the, uh, and at the championship games and the Super Bowl, and, and they have to have it then because uh, apparently in Philadelphia, everything is driven by the Philadelphia Eagles. So I, I just thought that was hilarious. Yeah, and, and people always say, well, do you know which weekend it's going to be next year? And I'm like, yep, just look up the Super Bowl and back up a week. Yep, a week yep. before the Super Bowl. I can tell you, as far as the Super Bowl's planned out, I can tell you when Educon's going to be. Uh, <laughs> but I had joined them that first year, and it was a pretty small crew, and got to meet a few of the teachers and hang out and kind of see the scene, and then had to go back and kind of gut check about whether or not I was going to leave Flagstaff, because I really did never think I was leaving, honestly. Um, I, I bought a house. I mean, to date, the bulk of my closest friends are there. I mean, it's just, it was kind of a, I'm going to I'm gonna take a little bit of a risk. I hadn't really been to the East Coast very much, ever. <laughs> well, wait a second. You're from Wisconsin. That's like almost the East Coast, isn't it? Uh, no. Mm -mm. Not for, even. Not for somebody, even. For somebody born and raised in Oxnard, there's like California, Arizona, the Mississippi River, and the East Coast. So right. that's sort of the geography of the United States. From a yeah, there's there's very little similarities between um, Wisconsin and Philadelphia. Uh, love of football is definitely <laughs> one of those yeah. things, but uh, that's about it. Um, <laughs> so so yeah, so I had um, kind of come to the point in late February, early March that I wanted to kind of throw my hat in the ring, and so I'd reached out to Chris and said, you know, what's the process to get an interview? And so I went out on my spring break and interviewed. He called me on April Fool's Day and offered me the job. <laughs> oh, man. And I was like, wait, <laughs> are we, are you for real? Um, so anyway, and then moved pretty blind, you know, into the scene. Um, but I thought about it much harder. You know, like, it, it was, that was a big transition. I've never really lived in a major metropolitan area by, on purpose. Um, Lived in small college towns, Lawrence, Kansas, Flagstaff, Arizona, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere, hometown of 450 people. You know, so moving into the center city, Philadelphia, was different. Um, and, but I knew going in I was only staying four years. That was part of the deal. Um, I was never staying. Um, I knew 
personally that I couldn't, I didn't want to live in a city permanently. Like it's just not my, as much as you could see Chris Lehman living on a farm in the middle of nowhere, um, <laughs> I was not misplaced um, in the middle of Philadelphia, but really wanted to go work in a place that espoused the same educational philosophy I was chasing and work with a group of people pulling in the same direction hard. And I decided that it was worth it to go and do that for a few years and really see what that was. And so didn't regret a minute of it, but knew there was always, always a leaving date. Did that, did that cement or did it form some of the views that you talked about in terms of student-centered learning and, and working with kids? Because, I mean, it, it sounds like even when you were in Arizona, you were doing some things that were a little different than the traditional teacher-led kind of classroom. But SLA is like a whole different world in terms of project-based learning and inquiry-based stuff. So what's interesting about SLA and what forces you to be a phenomenal teacher there, and you know, I will go on record every time I speak, I mention this, the most densely talented group of teachers I will ever have the um, you know, privilege of working with. It is bar none, the highest bar you can walk into as a teacher. Um, the shiny stuff that you've done before because you were the only teacher doing it isn't going to cut it for very long in there. The um, yeah, the thing I got, it's sort of like if you're a student in a high school, um, you know, you're, and then you go to college, um, in high school you were at the top of your class or the top 10 or 12%. You're kind of a rock star. And then you go to college and you're just average. Right. That, that's kind of the impression I had about a teacher going to SLA. Right. And then, and then the average is pretty amazing, which right. is fabulous as a you know as a professional you're inside a place that literally on a daily basis takes apart teaching and learning at the most fundamental level what are we doing how are we doing it why are we doing that is this working why not how'd that work out where you know like there's just a constant churn of conversation about teaching and learning both amongst the teachers between teachers and students amongst the students you know, it's not this thing where we've got some magical land we talk about teaching and then the students receive it. It's, it's a pretty organic conversation about teaching and learning. And so the change for me wasn't so much that the bits and parts that I'd figured out over time, I was still doing a lot of that. But now I was in an environment where the kids were heavily primed to do the work because I got them in the 11th and 12th grade. That's the years of curriculum that I taught. And then also the other teachers around me were all pulling in the same direction. And the difference is extraordinary. And I was really fascinated by that. Like, can you build, and what does it look like to build a system that was disciplined around a similar set of um, core values and around practice and around conversation? And then how does that manifest itself with the kids and the teachers and the learning environment? And that's what was different. Um, the, the pieces weren't but the way in which they were assembled and the support structures you had around you to make it happen um, were just uh, un unrivaled in my previous teaching experiences. Well, and one of the things that struck me is that the kids get primed and there's a sort of conscious uh, developmental process. Um, I, I don't want to call it enculturation, but in, in one sense it really is. 
you know, these kids come from middle school and, and they're not all rock stars when they came from middle school. I remember talking to some kids that were like flunking middle school, <laughs> um, but they get in and they immediately buy into the process um, and, and the, the sort of guiding questions and, and all of that. So I have to imagine by the time you get them as juniors, that they're pretty much fleshed out in terms of doing the work. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, like getting the most well-coached basketball team handed to you and saying, see what you can do with this. You yeah. know, we can do a lot with this. You know, um, it's the, the work of the ninth grade teachers in that building was nothing short of miraculous. I mean, the, the attention to building in a set of academic mindsets and academic habits within the kids to become questioners and to become, uh, you know, find their own voice, um, to really dig into not just what's the content, but when I interact with it, what does it mean to me and how does that manifest itself in evidencing my learning? I mean, those kinds of things that the ninth grade and 10th grade teachers then built upon, you know, by the time I got them in 11th grade, it was it was pretty dreamy, um, but you had to be on your game. I mean, they were not, you know, they were not, it, when you build a system, and I, I bring this up a lot, when you build a system that isn't based on compliance, but is based on empowering students to find their voice and questions and all that, you got to be ready to go because you, they don't stop asking questions, and, and they're not there to ask the easy ones. And so, you know, when you, when you open up this can of worms, you better be ready to go because... Um, they they definitely find their voice, and there ain't any any stopping it. So, well, and that's kind of uh, you know leading to my next question: How much pressure is there then on you as a teacher to sort of um, channel that, or or at least not get in the way? I remember you you told a story uh, during your keynote, and I was going to ask you about that, where you almost squashed um, some kids doing a video project. Um, was it, oh, it was, uh, they wanted to do something about drugs. Yep. Yeah. I tell that story almost every time I speak because it's A, true, and B, one of those moments where you have to always say, if you've asked for this, you know, it's the, Chris Lehman brings it up all the time when we're trying to make hard decisions about what to do when somebody's got some good crazy idea and he always says, you know, what's the worst, what's the worst outcome of your best idea? You know, what are the consequences of that? And by empowering students to ask their own questions, your, your worst consequences, they do, you know, and, and sometimes you have to roll with that. Um, and so you get some pretty general boundaries around it, and then you just try to absent yourself the process as much as possible. Um, I was talking with, um, some teachers at the end of last week, and I said one of the things that I think was incredibly easy to do at SLA was make the classroom all about the kids and push that ownership moment all on them. I would be crafting the pieces of the what and the, you know, kind of the steps through it, but they were driving the space. They were driving the, the conversation. They were driving the path we were on, and um, and I had a lot of flexibility to do that. And so it's very exciting to do that, but you have to kind of, if you are, if you believe your job is to lead a room of kids by cult of personality, it's not going to go well. Um, you got to kind of check that at the door 
and become secondary to the the important actor in the room, and that is the student. Are, are the kids going to revolt at SLA if you try to do that? If you try to rule by cult of personality? Yeah. Um, some do. Um, I wouldn't say it. It what it does, and it does this in normal high schools. Certain kids then really love that person, and so there's the people that are like, eh, you know, like I don't love going to this class because I know that I'm not in in or you know in the in group of kids who who are like that. Um, and I just I just don't find that a very compelling part of what the job is, you know, like, mm -hmm. I, I joke that I could care less, you know, that I'm, it's not, it's just not about me, you know, like at the most core level, it's just not about me. Um, it's about them and their ideas and what they can do with them. And the more you put yourself in that space, it, there's just a finite amount of, you know, kind of air in the room. And if you suck it all up, you're taking it away from your kids. So, um, I mean, not to say that we didn't, I mean, it looked like class a lot of days, but I tried really hard not to make it about what I wanted and really about what are the questions that they have from chasing down some interesting ideas. And those ideas, well, let, let's, those ideas came in part from you, but also in part from the kids, right? Sure. I mean, one of the best projects I, I ever did, um, I conceived of it when I was in teaching middle school, but they couldn't handle it, so I couldn't do it there because it was just pretty high concept, and I was just waiting for a classroom that I could do this in. And so when I first got to SLA, we did this what-if history project where after a year of learning history, they could change any possible moment of history. Um, and it, But it had to be thoughtful, and I would push them pretty hard, like, um, it can't be magic. You can't just, you know, there's no aliens, there's no, like, it has to be real. And if you're going to, you know, remove somebody from the historical timeline, you have to think legitimately what might have done that, you know. So um, some kids want to get rid of the cotton gin because they, they felt that in their reading of history that if the cotton gin hadn't been invented, slavery would have died out in the late 1700s because of the cotton uh, industry being so kind of not profitable. So they went about trying to figure out how to get rid of Eli Whitney from the the historical record. And so uh -huh. they were now, you know, searching out what child mortality was for the mid to late 1700s when he was born. Trying to figure out, okay. Could he get some disease? What, and then sort yeah. of what would have been plausible for him not to have made it? Or, you know, some people had gotten in accidents when they were young or, you know, what have you. But so... They go about this whole process, you know, but it's it's a big, heavy lift to change history, and it's very complex. And so my job in that was trying to help them find enough discipline around the ideas, not my ideas, their own, but enough discipline around them to keep them moving, you know, down the path of chasing the questions of, okay, then what does that mean, and what does that mean, and how does that work, and, you know, you know, where does this go and why does it go that way? And they get super interesting places with that. You know, kids, will, they came up with these really great reflections about one, one young lady who wanted to find the end. She wanted, some kids would start at a particular moment and then let it play and say, I'm just going to, I'm going to see what happens, you know, and let it go forward. And other people said, 
I want this reality to exist in the modern day, and I'm going to see how to try to make it happen by going backward. So they have to work backwards to some penultimate sure. moment that sort of made that possible. Right. It could go either way, but in the end of it, they had to represent what today looked like as a result of the historical change. And some kids, one of the girls who started at the present day that she wanted a different reality to exist, she came to the determination that she couldn't figure out anything to change in history that would have yielded that reality. And she said, it, it made me understand much more deeply why we are where we are today. Wow. I know, you know, and just, wow. it, and they just, they really, they get it. You know, I mean, the kids would come up to you and they'd get caught somewhere and they'd get stuck and they, they'd be like, so I know this and this and this and this, and that couldn't happen because this happened. And then that's, you know, I don't know, I, I was thinking about that one, but really when you consider that this happened and then that happened, I don't think it's be plausible that this happened, so I'm kind of stuck at and you're just listening to them, like, just vomit out historical fact after historical fact from memory completely in their brain, and I'm like, tell me more about yeah. all the history that you've learned in there. You know, one kid one day just, just went, you don't know how much I know about this, and I was like, tell me. Um, so you get in these, you know, really extraordinary spaces where if you truly value that role of the kid and you kind of scaffold towards these really big, you know, moments where you let them, you know, where you let that brain run and push it out to what's possible, you know, they, they get to some really interesting places. I just feel like a lot of classrooms stick more into the, I'm going to stick to what every kid can get over level and stay there where everybody's comfortable and feels good instead of finding that, that kind of edge at the top of, I don't know if I can pull this off, but let's see how this goes. Well, the pushback from a lot of teachers, um, and, and I'm, I'm not going to single out history teachers, but we're kind of talking about history, so let's sure. single out history teachers. The pushback's going to be, the kids need to understand this and this and this and this and this and the connections between them. So we're going to do this and this and this and this and this, um, which really is, it's all in the book. Just read chapter after chapter and then you'll get it. And most kids in history because of that are like me. And first they develop a real hatred for it. Um, and then they find all kinds of creative ways to cheat so that they can get the work done but never really process any of the information. So nothing makes a difference. It's just factoids that, God, please let me remember this for the test on Friday, and then I don't care anymore. Yep. Welcome to American history class. Um, exactly. And I just, I, I can't even, I can't even, well, first of all, it's a gigantic waste of time. Um, if you believe that kids learn it because it comes out of your mouth, you need to reassess what you're up to. Um, you know, that a lot of teachers of history, especially in the high school, think I have done my due diligence by providing them an opportunity to know the information because I have presented it in front of them. And that was very fine for a long time because that was what it needed to be. But it's just not going to fly anymore. You know, kids got the History Channel 24 hours a day. We need to, you know, like, there's just a constant flood of information if they want to know it. And you really just have to say, when we are sharing space and showing up here together 300 minutes a week, 
what's the best use of these minutes to get you to be reflective citizens? Which is the whole point of teaching a history class and a government class is so that you have a citizenry that has a base amount of understanding of both where we come from, how we put it together, and then just maybe how we can refine on the process going forward. And it just is a monumental just loss of potential when we stop figuring out that the point of them being there is not to memorize information, but to figure out what it all means together and then create new ideas from that. Because um, right. that's when it gets sticky. You know, that's when it stays in their brain. So, um, well, uh, let's back up and kind of lead into this. But um, you, four years at SLA and then you left and now you're basically wandering the nation and working with teachers in school districts all over the place, right? Yep. Um, yeah, so I had a, a, a strange opportunity. I never really thought it was going to come come to fruition. I, there, there are some really funny moments when you actually start thinking about what you thought you were going to do and what you've actually ended up doing. Um, and I'm in the, huh, let's see where this goes moment at this point in time. But I thought when I went to SLA, I thought I would stay four years and I thought I would go somewhere else and be, and just teach again. You know, like I'd never, it had never occurred to me. I have an admin cert. And so at the most I thought perhaps I'd be a principal somewhere. Like that's as, <laughs> that's as edgy as I thought it would be, you know? And then, um, and then I had, uh, a, just a really strange run of opportunities, one of which was the TED Talk. The other was, um, you know, I got in, asked to write for the New York Times Learning Blog. I was in a PBS special. Um, something else happened in there, too. Like, just there, and it was, like, all converged around this one six-month window of time. It was a really, you know, kind of almost whiplash moment. And, um as I started to kind of watch all the opportunities line up, kind of in my end of my second and beginning of my third year of teaching at SLA, I was like, there might be some opportunity here. And so I started to be really diligent about saving money and thinking about how to leave the most doors open for the end of four years, depending on, you know, what I wanted to do. And so after four years, it became pretty evident that I would have enough work um, in the short term, at least, to see how it goes. And then I just figured at some point in time the work would peter out and I'd go back and work in a school and, you know, like I'd just have this little break where I'd gone out and done some other stuff because I wasn't really done working with SLA and I wasn't really ready to join a different school community, but I was, I was ready to not be living in Philadelphia anymore. So I kind of got stuck a little bit with the idea of joining another school community because... I just really still felt like I was part of the community at SLA. So I'm doing a lot of different things, but some of the most exciting work is that I've been able to be on the outside of the classroom and support a lot of the initiatives that we've been wanting to go after, which is get a second school started, which we did last year. Right. Um, we have a middle school in the works. We have a support of a redesign initiative for a K-8 school in the city as well. Um, and so there's, most likely going to be a middle school open in the next two years, um, you know, supporting a redesign in the next year, 
our new high school will be in year three next year. So there's a lot of the work that we wanted to do, but nobody could do because everybody was working, you know, I mean, so it, it kind of freed me up to support some of those initiatives. And then, um, and then just doing a lot of conference presenting and school-based professional development. Um, I still teach online for the University of Minnesota. I've done that at least one semester a year for the last four years. Um, and then this year started working pretty heavily with the district south of Atlanta on a personalization district initiative where I've been supporting six schools and next year there will be another eight schools and um, I'll be kind of doing a two-year transition with at least two maybe three of those um, where we focus on transforming what they were to what they want to be and shifting the systems and structures to meet that. And, and that's you know, from my standpoint, um, you know, I'm a practitioner in one district. Um, I, I'm a, the director of technology, but really involved in curriculum and, and stuff kind of district-wide. You're going into districts now. You've got one in Georgia. You've got one here in California and in, um, down in San Marcos near San Diego. Um, and, and you're spending multiple days there. But these are districts with... Um, regular teachers with the sort of traditional paradigms, how did an administrator come to decide that you're the person to get in there and start doing this? I'm, I'm curious about their vision and, and what they're seeing in terms of the difference between what they think is the right thing to do for kids and what's actually happening in the classroom. So that's one thing. And then the other one is, um, what's that translating to in terms of the teachers and, and how's that going when they're actually in the classroom and working with their kids? So the, the San Marcos um, work, this will be the third year that I've been with them, and I was invited in by Adina Sullivan that works in the district, a really phenomenal, phenomenal um, educator and teacher educator and organizer of possibility um, in that district. And they did a really smart thing, which is they wanted to re redefine what it meant to teach and learn in their spaces. They wanted to introduce technology to enable that, but they didn't want to have an iPad initiative. They wanted to have a shift in the teaching and learning. So they have an inquiry teaching and learning initiative supported by technology. And that's the way that we talk about the work. And so for her, she felt like it was a pretty natural fit that if if they wanted the teachers to worry about the teaching and learning first and the technology second, that the work that I had done in Philadelphia would really support that type of mantra. Right. Um, and then also, I mean, I spent eight years in Arizona, which has some of the worst funded schools in all of America, and didn't have a lot of resources and didn't have, you know, and so I, I've more than half my career was, was teaching in a classroom that was under-resourced, with a high population of ELL students and special education needs. And so I think that, you know, while SLA is um, a different type of environment with its own challenges, some people try to dismiss the work that's done there at times, that it's not regular kids or it's not the same. Um, but I've definitely taught in that as well and know the difference and know, you know, the challenges of it. So I think that for her, I was the right fit because of, 
just the breadth of types of experiences that I had had in my career. Yeah, but I, you know, having visited um, SLA and, and, and gone to Educon, I think one thing people need to understand is that, you know, that is not a resource rich um, environment. I mean, it's a regular Philly public school with regular Philly public funding and all of the uh, bureaucratic mess. Administrivia is what I call it. Um, yep. That any other uh, urban school district has to deal with. The teachers there are doing these things literally in spite of the bureaucracy that you know kind of permeates any large school district. Which and that's why to me it's really fascinating because it really is about what the teachers and the kids are doing, um, supported right. by an administrator. Right, and and even and even if you don't have devices, there's a way to do this work, and which is which is what I did in in Arizona too. We weren't one to one there either. So, you know, there. I think she felt like I had the right background to to be relevant to her teachers, and so I started going out there my first year when I had left the classroom, and this round will be the third year, the third cohort that they're working through, and then she has a very developed mentoring system where she brings them together as a cohort to talk about how it's going and they get visits and they do observations and you know it's a really robust environment to support okay here's the big ideas let's talk about them and then here's all the follow-up and the support that comes with it and so they're doing it very thoughtfully um, incredibly disciplined as well about this is the work we're about now this is how we're going to talk about it and this is how we're going to support it so that was that was that work and then um, the Georgia work Oh, sorry. Did you? Oh no, I was going to say, but that, I mean, that's a huge paradigm shift for the traditional classroom teacher. I'm curious about how the inertia of the standard way of doing things kind of ran up against this sort of redirection, and and how that went. So the the first group were really opt in. I mean, they it was a district wide opt in thing, and they got to choose to be a part of it. And so you always start, and that's, you know, they starting with the early adopters moment. And so that's the first year. They started with the people that really wanted in on this. Or they might have had a principal that was super supportive and really said to his teachers, I support you taking a risk and doing this. We need leaders to come back in the building to show how it's done. And so they started out with their early adopters that then started being the model within the buildings. And you really start to break down the inertia when you see the train moving, and you see different things happening, and more people um, have just gotten on board over time because of that. It's it it cracks open the door to understand what's possible in those moments, and so they're they're really benefiting from that. But there is administrative support for that. You know, I we had all kinds of upper admin in that first group coming in to say, we know this is hard. We really appreciate the work you're doing. We need this in our district you know, we're here to support you through this. Not, if this doesn't work out, your job's on the line, you know, kind of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, there was a lot of support from the top all the way down to the classroom for, the, for these people to take a step towards something new and then over time support structures put in place to keep the, to keep the momentum going. And in Georgia, is it kind of the same? Did, is, did they approach it a little bit differently, or is so, it the same sort of evolution? That came out of a, a presentation that I gave at a thing called CoLab, which was in Atlanta, 
Um, partially, I got brought in by a guy named Bo Adams that's now an admin at Mount Presbyterian, which is a independent school in the suburbs. And uh, he said, we would like you to come and talk about systems and structures. This was right on top of the new school opening when we had to really think about if there was going to be a second one, what are the key components of the thing that we're trying to create without being so prescriptive that it feels like school in a box. You know, so we had to really kind of confront some of those things. And he said, I know you guys have had a lot of interesting conversations. We would love for you to come and chat um, in Atlanta. And that was two years ago. No, a year, year ago, September. So I did. And right after I got done speaking, this really um, wonderful woman named Karen Perry came up to me and sat down and said, we need you. We're doing this thing where we're going to try to transform every school in our district. We are a 51 school district. We um, have received some money to do some planning towards personalized learning, but all those things you were talking about, do we need those? And she said, I really would like to talk to you about working on this. And then I don't hear from her for months. And then early in the spring, she pops back up in my email and says, I don't know if you remember me. And I, I did. It was like one of those things where it just lingers like, this seems like interesting work. Where'd she go? <laughs> uh, and she got a hold of me and said, you know, I think we would like to engage you in some work. Um, we've got this convening that we're doing in the beginning of June. Can you come down and spend two days with us? And I have spent by, by January 1, so that's June 1 to January 1, I will have been there almost 30 days of consultancy this year, which is a lot. in yeah. um, And will continue, most likely, if the funding continues, into the next couple of years. And so part of what I did there was they're doing an interesting thing around personalization where they don't want it to just be about um, the kids and the computers and being individualized and self-pacing. Like, there is a component about content management that's a part of their models but they wanted to sell it through project-based learning that once the kids had new information how do we get them to do the interesting thing with it and what does that look like and so she had me come in to start working with the teachers to talk about project-based learning and then as a result of some of those conversations we have gotten into more of the systems and structure stuff and so over the next two years I will first yeah it's it's all up in the air because of, you know, it's outside dollars funding some of this initiative stuff. And so most likely, um, if everything goes to plan, um, I will be supporting two schools over the next two years for sure. And basically keeping an eye on what you're, in two years, what do you want to see? Backward planning to set up the professional development, the, you know, technical infrastructures, the right master schedule, you know, all of kind of the operational moments around it, and then helping them sustain momentum to get to what their goal is. Um, so is, are those going to be like um, demonstration schools or model they're the, schools? They're the first cohort is what they call it um, toward their personalized learning initiative. All schools are going to go. Um, this first round is six. Next year there will be eight. You know, so they're they're going to add all of the schools eventually, but this is the – this is the tip of the spear crew who's decided to be the, the ones out front. Right. Um, and that's, you know, they're not calling it a demonstration school. They're just the first cohort. But again, superintendent right out in front saying, this is what we're doing. We're moving in this direction as a district. 
I believe in this, this is what I'm supporting, being very clear um, about that is it is an initiative where they're all going to pull forward. But what's interesting, and one of the reasons I love this the most, is that they are giving flexibility to the school communities to develop what they actually want it to look like inside their school based on visits to other schools, based on who they know um, their school to be, um, and and play with the pieces and parts of it a little bit to have some flexibility to personalize it for their own school. And so there isn't a school-in-a-box model going on there either. So it's a, it's a really a really dynamic project. There's a lot going on in there. Um, I am not bored one minute when I enter that district till when I leave. Um, I am usually <clears throat> working before school and then having meetings till I go to sleep at night. I mean, they are, they are in it. They are about the work. Um, and they are trying really hard to be thoughtful practitioners to retool this thing for something new. And what are you seeing, uh, both in San Marcos, but also here? I mean, they, they sound sort of uh, fundamentally similar, but definitely different. What are you seeing happening with kids? So some of it, and these are real new, the ones in, um, I, I don't actually have an ability in the San Marcos setup to be anywhere near the kids. We're all at the district office. Um, California is so awesome in how they set up their contracts. I have to actually have it written in that I won't to have contact with children um, but <laughs> oh, California, really? California is is so um, just really uh, spot-on in their contract making um, but what <laughs> what uh, I, I looked at them like I work all over the country this is the only state they're like welcome um, yeah, but, we're very good at administrivia in yeah um, so I actually don't know a ton and I don't have a ton of contact with their cohorts I'm really like the the, the gateway to inquiry driven with the San Marcos. Um, you know, and I talk with Adina a little bit and, and they're excited about the levels of engagement that they're seeing with kids and, you know, the excitement that kids are bringing um, to the education. What I'm seeing in, um, in Henry County, which is the district in Atlanta, is kids start to, so they're in the beginnings of this. This is like the first year of it. And you see what you expect to see, which is not kids completely sold that this is the thing to do because it's hard. It's really hard to switch over from being the kid that just answers direct questions given to you to be the kid to take that information and make something new from it. And so they're in the position of where the kids are trying to get their brain around the whole thing. Um, and it'll take a little bit of time because these aren't schools of choice. SLA is a school of choice. Ch students choose to go there from all over the city. Um, you know, rocket ship is a model that I don't particularly love, but it's a school of choice. Parents and children say, I think that would be a good model for my kid. Henry County and San Marcos are not schools of choice in that they're district schools. And when you change the district school to a new model, the kids aren't always, you know, the, the one saying, oh, yeah, I totally thought this would be a good idea for me. I'm so glad I'm here. It's, whoa, 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 what did you do to my school? And where's yeah, my last Last year it wasn't like this. Why, why do right. I have to do this? Right. And, and it's unsettling, and it takes away some things that are quite comfortable, and you have to rethink so many kind of assumptions that you have about what a school is and how it works and what the role of student is and what the role of teacher is and 
how to support all of those people through a process of transformation to something new. You know, and I, I bet I've said like a thousand times, we're playing the long game. This isn't about tomorrow in class. Tomorrow in class, they might still be pushing back and saying, I just want a worksheet. Can I just take a bubble test? We're not playing that game. You have to just hold discipline to the fact that you're going to do something new. And so they're getting to the point <laughs> where they're starting to see some of those gains, but it's not something that's easy. This stuff is really, really challenging. Um, and it's super challenging if you are not in a community that necessarily is, is on the cutting edge of being prepared for it because you have to talk to your parents, you have to talk to your students, you have to talk to your teachers, you have to talk to the community, and there's just a lot of um, transparent conversation going on about the future of the schools and what they want them to be for kids and the community. But those transition spaces can be quite challenging. And, and that kind of, I, I mean, I, we're running up against all the time I can steal from you, but you're now working in an environment where you've mentioned a couple times, you know, there, it's not a school in the box. I actually kind of naively went to SLA thinking, okay, I'm going to get down there, walk out of the seminars so I can like talk to kids and teachers and, and see what's really going on. Cause sure. I'm going to take that secret sauce back and pour it in my district. Um, and every single person I talked to said, you can't do that. The conversation has to be different than that. I thought I could like, take pictures of the guiding questions and, and get all of the stuff, steal a couple projects from a couple teachers and kind of expand from that. Um, and, and so the question is, where is the secret sauce? If a district wants to say, we know intuitively that inquiry-based work in a student-centered classroom is the place to go, what does a district do in, in order to kind of make that happen when they are just a public district, not a school of choice, sure. not a collection of people that have been recruited to do that. Um, so part of it, part of it comes down to first getting a group of people to start asking some questions. And so often it's a conversation protocol more so than a school in a box. You know, what is your mission and vision? What you know, and, and just really starting from a most basic place. Um, there's two interesting books out right now that I think would be helpful um, in kind of thinking about it. One of them is by Larissa Pahoma. It just came out. Um, it's out by ASCD, and it she's the teacher I taught next door or two for four years. We started there um, in 08 together. It was her first teaching job, and she just what we call wrote the book on SLA, which is it broke down some of the component parts of what it is we think you need to have a conversation about. Um, and then she um, included suggestions in there of, you know, the transition spaces. Like, if you're here, here's some suggestions for, get, for moving to there. And so she has a really good book on that that kind of breaks it down because I don't think that you need our guiding questions, but I think it's nice to have some. You know, I don't know that I, you need um, our five core values, but f figure out what yours are and, and be real transparent about that. Um, the other thing I talk about is that you have to build schools with inherent or intentional care structures is what I refer to it as because I don't know how to say it any other way. But 
in elementary schools are often um, in one teacher's classroom and there's you know an innate kind of family setting around that and middle schools a lot of times are in interdisciplinary teams um, high schools don't have often an inherent care structure in them we use an advisory system some of the schools where we've done student-centered learning conversations and personalization I joke that you could personalize down to the level where no teacher knows your name because all of your work is at your own pace and no one teacher is connected to you and when you've done that what is going to be your overarching care structure to make sure that that's not happening um, you know so advisory programs um, or continuing with teaming or you know whatever it is but how are you going to care for kids in your system right. so it, you know it's a lot of the conversations you know what what are the key qualities of you know a citizen that you want in your community backward plan from there um, what do you what resources do you have available to you in your community to support some interesting partnerships I mean we had a really phenomenal partnership in Philadelphia but we're also in the middle of a major metropolitan area where every kid has free transportation to the entire city every day so you're talking about the Franklin Institute Franklin Institute and then they all have inter, uh, internships their sophomore and junior year that they go to independently on Wednesday afternoons you can't do that where I grew up you know yeah, that'd be kind of tough yeah I mean it's just but that's my point that it isn't about that's the secret sauce the secret sauce is who in your community can can offer partnerships with the school you know so the fact that that happens isn't the most critical piece it's that we're partnering with the community in interesting ways for what makes sense for our particular setting and so the question becomes you know what is it in your community and so it's all of those things it's not that there is a you know a one thing but I do I do believe pretty strongly that you need to reevaluate your systems and structures for a more modern version of learning using all the tools of the day and then you need to have a community-led transparent conversation about what you want in your community for a citizenry well and, and I think what what I've picked up on um, you haven't once talked about um, the things every school kid needs to know the 11 operations in mathematics or the 15 periods of history um, I don't actually believe in that I don't even know I mean Will Richardson kind of um, had a moment on Twitter yesterday where he was going off a little bit about like how do we even say what that is anymore you know like there's so much information how do we decide the what anymore? We spend so much time arguing about the what. Um, I I just I look at people and I'm, I just say it's a red herring. It's about yeah. how you know we get we are so consumed with the what because it's an easier conversation. It's a finite thing. It's it's something that is or isn't. The what is much mess or the how is much messier. And the how is where the really interesting conversation comes up you know how are you engaging students in their own learning how are you um, empowering their own voice how are you helping students become self-directed how are you helping students to um, discern fact fiction and all out lies you know what are you doing to help them manage the fire hose of information 
that they will receive on a daily basis to make sense of it. Um, how do you give them an interesting question and let them go to sort through a diverse set of resources and create from it? Those are the interesting conversations. Um, we get way sidelined on the what, and it's just a red herring. Yeah, Seymour Papert's uh, which billionth of the knowledge base of humanity are you gonna are you gonna in, in, engage in with the kids? Right. Not a relevant question. Right, and it doesn't matter to me. I taught history thematically. It was for me one of the best things I ever did. And had the flexibility to do in Philly um, at SLA, and it was finally that moment when you brought up the. I meant to make this point earlier, but when you brought up the. You know, I, I didn't engage in history because it just felt like, you know, one random moment after another. And I, I get that. Like, I get why kids feel like that. And so what I did was I organized it under themes. And I, you know, I think about them like the old way we taught history is just one stack of individual paper sitting on the edge of your desk and it's just paper. And when they say, you know, what happened in 1812, they have to be like, and find a random piece of paper that has no organization to it. No reason like that is between one or the other. And it just, it, that, that's not organization. That's just to a child that's trying to learn something new that just doesn't make any sense. And so when you do themes, you create, the way I think of it is a bookshelf for them to put their learning away on the bookshelf. Because I didn't want them to know everything about every war, but I wanted to them to understand the arc of war and the place in society it's held in, in America and deep dive into a couple of them so that every time they heard something new about war, they had a shelf to put it away on and really help them build um, the schema to understand the information, to put it away. And I think that we, when we think about content as being the goal, we forget that that's just not even close to the goal because what content starts where, ends where, you know, is is the fact that Texas doesn't like Jefferson any better than, you know, some other state that, that loves him, you know, does it matter? Um, you know, can they think, can they engage in a conversation about history thoughtfully, understanding bias, prejudice, lens, um, the the really complex interactions between what was and what is the long tail of history you know like those are the things I care about whether or not they know the dates of all the wars I could care less which doesn't make me very popular in history circles. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend just as an aside a good friend of mine uh, a biology teacher by the way but uh, he really passionate about history and he taught a summer school class and taught it backwards right uh, went in with the newspaper pulled out some stuff and they started working backwards in American history from the article. Uh, the thought being, you know, make some relevant connections between where we are now, how did we get here, what are the events that sort of supported it. I, I always thought that was kind of interesting. Not Love interesting it. enough that I was going to like dive Go into history at that point, but <laughs> maybe now. So. Here you are, helicoptering into a couple districts. What's in your future? Are you going to continue to do this work? Are you going to you you going to put this together somewhere and kind of share with the rest of us, or so, how, how do we phone you up and get you into our district? <laughs> so um, the organization that it, it's under the work is called Inquiry Schools. Um, Chris Lehman and I formed it in the last year. 
Um, it is the agency that oversees the grant for the new school. It's the umbrella under which I'm doing the work with the Georgia district as well. Um, this summer, I think, again, this is all tentative, um, probably up until the first of the year, but we'll be conducting um, 11 days of Summer Institute with the Georgia teachers in Georgia with the SLA teachers. So we'll do 55 consultancy days um, with them, 11 days of five teachers. So engaging the teachers there and trying to set up some relationships for year-round mentorships. Um, basically, it's um, trying to find interesting work where districts have set up the conditions by which to move forward through the transformation process. So and they engage us. We have another conversation coming up shortly with another district as well. I mean, it's just basically people know that I'm kind of doing this work and some word of it's a lot of word of mouth, uh -huh. but it's all through under the banner of inquiry schools. So is inquiry schools something that a district can subscribe to and engage in these conversations? Um, is it um, like the Coalition of Essential Schools, Ted Sizer's old model? Um, it's nothing like that yet because it's so new and frankly they have one employee and it's me. Um, and so we're working so on that. You're a little busy right now. <laughs> we're working on that. I think as we start to build outside Philadelphia more, that's going to be necessary. Um, and that work is, is in the process. Um, I wouldn't say that we're, we exactly know what that is today, or we're, we're pretty thoughtful about letting a lot of this stuff generate organically, and so as we see need, we create more capacity from it rather than build it the other way. Um, you know, I'm driven perpetually by, you know, I just said this to another group of people, uh, being a consultant is a weird thing because you were a teacher for a long time and you never had to like engage with people around money and business and so it's an interesting transition for me as a human being and I said I have very little ego in this stuff like I, I have learned a lot of things and I am really in, really interested in sharing as much as possible in the vein that it is useful and there are districts that think oh that would be useful to us and I think great then we will work together, but at no point is it like, I think I'm the solution for everybody, because I certainly don't. But as we start to engage more schools, the conversation will always be, you know, what is most useful? And it might be, you know, an online community, it might be a set of resources, it might be, um, you know, a more robust group of people that, you know, are available to do this work than, than me, um, or the, you know, the SLA teachers in the summer, but it's just going to have to develop organically out of figuring out what is useful and then developing capacity around that. So for those of us that might be interested in kind of watching this, do we stay in touch with your blog? Does Inquiry Schools have a website? We yeah, inquiryschools.org. It's pretty rudimentary at this point in time, again, because we're just, we're so, we're so understaffed. <laughs> 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 But that's where that's where it will be, and I write a lot about like the most recent thing that I posted online was uh, a rundown of my week last week of the work that I did. Just um, the other day, yeah, and and I had to ask that you, you you don't maintain a house, you you don't have a car. I do have a car. It's just in Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but you're not in Wisconsin. No, thank goodness, because the weather's really about to tank. <laughs>
So, um, your blog, by the way, is uh, Diana Laufenberg at or dot wordpress.com. It's just Laufenberg dot wordpress.com. Okay. Um, and thinkpreschools.org, where there will be more of a presence. This winter, I think, I'm going to catch a break and have some downtime um, in very snowy Wisconsin, where I'm going to work on some of those more kind of nuts and bolts pieces. Um, but as long as I'm still kind of hair on fire, running around doing all kinds of different work, um, it's hard to stop and do kind of the structural work of the organization because I'm doing the structural work in schools and so it's just again you just have to kind of intentionally make some choices and this winter I think I will have more time to build those out but I try to tweet out a lot of resources um, and push it out um, I'm hoping to write more on my blog I go through spurts where I write a lot and then I don't write it all for a long time and then I write a lot <laughs> and I don't write a lot so yeah. um, I'm hoping to catch uh, being a little bit more um, consistent in what I'm doing so I'm really really seeing some interesting things and and learning some very important things about school communities and what's happening during some of these shifts and changes. Well, for, for anyone that's not seen your TED Talk or had the pleasure of, of seeing you um, give a talk, the, the, the sort of thing that you did for us at Fall Q, it's absolutely a must. Um, and I, I really think more people... Uh, that people absolutely need to be paying attention to these conversations or as Will Richardson has said, you know, traditional education is going to sort of wind up looking around and realize that it's been obsolete for a long time and it's no longer relevant. Yep. Um, and we just don't need to go there. Like we right. can totally do this work and we have so many teachers ready to do the work. Um, we just need to decide collectively as a community to move forward. Agreed. Diana, thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us. My uh, pleasure. Uh, there, I, I've got so many more questions, but just not enough time. So I'll, I'll have to bug you again, and we'll get you on for part two, um, maybe over the winter when uh, um, Rider's Block has <laughs> freed you up for a little bit of time or something in the dead of winter in Wisconsin. So. Um, this has been uh, another episode of Reboot Ed. Um, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you soon. Music.